Welcome to Club Core, an interdisciplinary podcast exploring science stories. I'm your host, Dr. Angel Core, an assistant professor of neuroscience at UNC Asheville. Each episode of this podcast is created by undergraduate students enrolled in one of my courses. So join us as we delve into a variety of topics with one simple goal, to get it less wrong. Hi, my name is Rosanna Garris. I'm a senior with the chemistry department here at UNCA and a neuroscience minor. Hi, my name is Scout Smith. I am also a senior in the biology department with a neuroscience minor here at UNCA. So today we're going to be talking about MDMA. So let's just jump right in. While MDMA, or 3,4-methylene-dioxymethamphetamine, is generally thought of as a party drug, it was originally synthesized in 1912 by German chemists who were developing drugs to promote blood clotting. And while MDMA doesn't do that, they realized that it did have psychoactive properties, so they patented the compound. It was tested on non-human subjects during the MKUltra experiments of the 1950s, as well as experimented with for potential use as a weapon by the U.S. during the Cold War, along with other drugs such as LSD. By the 1980s, MDMA had become a popular party drug and was thought to be a more mild and safe version of LSD, which isn't necessarily true. It was categorized as a Schedule I drug in 1985, even though some researchers saw potential for its therapeutic benefits as early as the 70s. And researchers are still studying the potential therapeutic uses of the drug today, which we'll talk more about later. So what does it actually do? MDMA, MOLLE, or ecstasy is a central nervous system stimulant and is chemically similar to other amphetamines such as methamphetamine or even Adderall. Users often report increased pro-social feelings such as love and openness while on the drug. In fact, even rats experience this sort of pro-social effect. In some studies, rats were reported to show pro-social behaviors such as laying next to each other or decreases in aggressive displays when administered MDMA. So when I think of MDMA, I think Molly, ecstasy, the rave scene, etc. Quite honestly, I think of the 90s. So what is ecstasy up to now? Is the recreational scene similar? Has its use decreased? Tell me the numbers. The stereotypical image that may come to mind when thinking of an MDMA user might be a teenager or someone in their early 20s who parties and listens to a lot of electronic dance music. This is often how MDMA is portrayed in the media, and there might be some truth to it. The 2018 National Survey on Drug Use and Health reported that individuals ages 18 to 25 had the highest incidences of MDMA use, but some participants aged 12 to 17 or 26 plus had also used MDMA. So while MDMA use is not nearly as widespread as the use of other drugs such as marijuana, there are still a lot of people who use it. There is a significant online community that promotes education and harm reduction surrounding MDMA use. Two significant topics regarding harm reduction are proper dosage as well as supplementation. Users of MDMA are at risk for overdoses that can be fatal. Um, Use of MDMA can cause overheating, irregular heartbeat, and serotonin syndrome, as well as having neurotoxic effects. So websites like rollsafe.org offer those who decide to use MDMA guides to be able to take the drug in the safest way possible. Um, They also offer suggestions of supplements to take both before and after taking the drug. Supposedly, this supplementation may help to protect users from experiencing adverse side effects. 
Some of the supplements they suggest are 5-HTP, multivitamins, and antioxidants. However, there isn't really a lot of evidence to suggest that these supplements are really going to protect a user from experiencing neurotoxic effects. So we're still in an age of ecstasy. It's something that's still happening. And you mentioned that it was a Schedule One drug, right? If I remember correctly, that means that it is legally considered to have no medical use. But you also mentioned that there was research into its potential psychiatric use. So I'm wondering, how is it that a drug that has been shown to have medical potential end up getting blacklisted? What were the potential benefits that researchers saw? Right. So as mentioned before, researchers saw potential for therapeutic use of MDMA as early as the 70s. They actually nicknamed the drug Adam at first because they felt that it allowed people to reach a sort of pure version of themselves. Unfortunately, MDMA was categorized as a Schedule One drug in 1985, right as MDMA was becoming established as a party drug and before any really in-depth research could be conducted. Recent research suggests that MDMA could potentially be useful in conjunction with psychotherapy to treat various anxiety disorders and PTSD. One hypothesis on how MDMA does this is that it disrupts fear memory reconsolidation, and since a big component of PTSD is fear memories, disrupting those may be incredibly helpful in allowing someone to make some progress. The MDMA doesn't just do this on its own, however, and would likely need to be combined with therapy to be successful. So, since it seems like it could have medicinal use, should it really be a Schedule One drug? Um, it's tricky, and it's also important to remember that this question of whether a Schedule One drug should really be a Schedule One isn't just limited to MDMA. For example, marijuana, which has a pretty established medicinal use, is still a Schedule One drug. Whereas something like a benzodiazepine, like Xanax, which has a potential for abuse and overdose, is listed as a Schedule Three, meaning that it's classified as having a low potential for abuse or dependence. So let's transition a little bit. Rosie, do you know how MDMA works in the brain? I do. So the way MDMA works in the brain is actually really interesting, mostly because it's really complex. If you can look at a screen right now, it might be helpful to reference the figure associated with this podcast because this can get a little bit convoluted. MDMA works in all of the monoamine systems. What this means is that any neurons whose synapses use a monoamine for neurotransmission are affected by MDMA. Epinephrine, serotonin, dopamine, all of these are monoamines. So MDMA can affect all of them. This is because MDMA can interact and inhibit a protein called monoamine oxidase, an enzyme responsible for breaking down monoamines so they can no longer participate in neurotransmission. You might have heard of monoamine oxidase inhibitors, or MAOIs, which are anxiety and depression medications designed to inhibit this protein and increase the amount of excitatory signaling in these neurons. MDMA interacts similarly with this protein so that it's clearing less of the neurotransmitters and therefore increasing the amount of signaling in the synapse. In the case of both MAOIs and MDMA, the effect is elevated mood. Along with this monoamine interaction, MDMA's primary mechanism of action is within the serotonergic synapses. And this is where that figure will come in handy. There are six different ways that MDMA interacts with serotonergic signaling. So when you first take MDMA, it enters your brain and it's floating around the neurons. 
If it happens upon a serotonergic synapse, there are two surface proteins that it can interact with. One of these, the one responsible for the hallucinogenic properties of MDMA, is the 5-HT2A receptor, a postsynaptic serotonin receptor. Basically, what MDMA is doing here is mimicking serotonin and working to trigger the postsynaptic neuron to fire an action potential, causing serotonin signaling where there originally was none. The other surface protein that MDMA can interact with is the 5-HTT, which is a serotonin transport protein on the presynaptic cell, which is responsible for the reuptake of serotonin from the synapse. Because MDMA looks like serotonin, the protein transports MDMA into the cell. Once inside the postsynaptic cell, there are four more neurotransmission-related processes that MDMA interacts with. MDMA is transported into the synaptic vesicles that hold serotonin, membrane sacs that hold neurotransmitters until the cell is ready to release them. It causes these vesicles to burst, dumping the serotonin that should be going into the synapse into the cell itself. Normally, the concentration of serotonin in the cell is a lot lower than that of the synapse, meaning that the protein we were just talking about earlier, 5-HTT, pull serotonin from outside of the cell to the inside of the cell. But when synaptic vesicles dump serotonin into the cells, this increases the concentration and reverses the 5-HTT pumping, dumping serotonin willy-nilly into the synapse. MDMA also decreases the amount of serotonin that the neuron can make by inhibiting the enzyme that catalyzes the slow step of serotonin synthesis, tryptophan hydroxylase. Now, what this all means is when MDMA reaches the neuron, it floods the synapse with serotonin rapidly and causes an increase in serotonin signaling, and then depletes the cell's ability to replenish serotonin. This accounts for the ecstasy that gives the drug its name, as well as the post-ecstasy depression, which is due to the inability to replenish serotonin and continue neurotransmission. It's also important to note that this decoupling of neurotransmitter release from action potential may, in part, be the cause of the neurodegeneration seen in chronic MDMA users. Wow, okay, so there's definitely a lot going on at the cellular level. What do we know about long-term effects or chronic use? So that's where this decoupling comes in. The way I learned it, neurons that fire together wire together, and those that fire out of sync lose their link. Your brain works by finely controlling which neurons interact. If suddenly one of your eyes becomes directly linked to your arm muscle, there would be a serious problem, right? So your brain has a lot of different ways that it prunes and restructures synaptic connections. If you have a serotonergic neuron that is randomly dumping serotonin and then temporarily stops being able to release serotonin, irrespective of action potential firing, that's going to be a synapse that's firing out of sync, which increases the likelihood that that connection will be pruned. This is one of the reasons why there is long-term neurodegeneration of serotonergic neurons, and the loss of these neurons could possibly be a reason why there are higher rates of anxiety and depression in those who have repeated MDMA use. So wouldn't that make it pretty risky to use MDMA therapeutically? I think it's important to note that these neurodegenerative effects are seen in those that use high doses of MDMA over long periods of time, which is what we see happening when they are used recreationally. MDMA would be used therapeutically through what's called microdosing. What this means is that patients would be dosed with much smaller amounts than those used recreationally, 
this is something that would be dosed as part of fear extinction therapy, which would hopefully be a short-term therapy. So while it's important to be aware of and understand the possible long-term damages caused by MDMA, it's also important to consider the possible benefits of short-term controlled use. There have been more studies in recent years to the effects of MDMA on fear extinction and PTSD treatment. Actually, this year, Hake et al. at the University of Colorado in Denver studied the effects of MDMA on fear extinction and fear memory reconciliation in rats. Fear extinction is about learning that fearful stimuli do not predict harm, whereas fear memory reconciliation is where, after that fear extinction has occurred, there's a spontaneous reappearance of a fear response when the memory is triggered. They conditioned the rats to fear a certain noise by coupling it with a mild electrical shock to the foot. This is a commonly used method that doesn't cause physical harm to the animal. This electrical shock elicited a fear response known as freezing, where the mice stops all muscle movement except for breathing. Eventually, the mice became conditioned so that just the noise without the shock caused a fear response. The next day, these mice underwent fear extinction training, where they were exposed to the noise without the presence of the foot shock. Before extinction training, some of these mice were dosed with different amounts of MDMA, and some with saline as a control group. They found that MDMA had no effect on fear extinction, meaning it neither increased or decreased the rat's ability to stop associating the noise with pain. But that's not all they found. They went back seven days later, so seven days after the fear extinction training, and found that there was inhibition of fear memory reconciliation by MDMA. Now, what that means is that those mice who were given MDMA exhibit less freezing behavior in response to the same noise. This is exciting for the treatment of PTSD because the point of fear extinction is to allow those with PTSD to carry out their lives without being triggered by their fear memory. So fear extinction is only meaningful for patients if it keeps random reconciliation of a fear memory from occurring. Like I was saying earlier, there's a cost-benefit analysis that occurs with all pharmaceuticals. Take, for example, cancer medication. Many chemotherapy drugs cause serious, even life-threatening side effects. But if your only two options are die of cancer or die trying to fight the cancer, these side effects become something that patients are willing to bear. The same cost-benefit analysis would need to be considered by the psychiatrist and the patient when deciding whether MDMA-assisted fear extinction training is an appropriate treatment. Yeah, so it's definitely not as black and white as it may seem to be. It's really exciting that it seems like there's a lot of potential for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Right, so we've definitely covered a lot of ground here. Um, be sure to check out all of the supplementary figures and journals attached to this podcast. And thank you so much for listening. Club Court is produced by a multidisciplinary team of students at UNC Asheville, with sound engineering support by undergraduate Kat Sawyer. Jessica Fox, a UNCA graduate, wrote our theme music. Special thanks to the UNCA Video Production and Media Design Lab for their help with this project, and thank you for listening. You can find show notes, including episode credits and links to the research discussed in this episode at clubcore.com episodes. If you like this episode, please share, subscribe, and review. And if you have a question you'd like us to explore, drop us a line. You can find me, Angel Core, on all the socials at Club Core. 
We'd love to tell your science stories so we can all get it less wrong. Until next time.